In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for bringing us together to share our understanding of Holy Scripture, particularly the book of Revelation. And on this very special day, Ash Wednesday, uh, let's begin uh, our Lenten season by trying to understand and accept the things that uh, we learn uh, from Scripture. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. Today's scripture was assigned to begin at uh, chapter 12, verse 6. But I think that it really begins with the end of chapter 11, 11, verse 19. And it's kind of interesting in a way that it took me a long time to kind of figure out how does that particular verse fit into the rest of this, these two chapters, 11 and 12. It says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the Ark of the Covenant could be seen in the temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and a violent hailstorm. Well, those things have always been a sign of God's presence. That is, the earthquake, and the storms, and the, the lightning, and the trumpets, and all of that kind of thing. So, I kind of overlooked that. But the Ark of the Covenant, now how does that fit in? But if you go back a little bit to a couple of verses before that, in the little prayer that begins uh, in verse 17, chapter 11, verse uh, 17, it says, We give you thanks, Lord, our God Almighty, who are and who were. We talked about that last week. For you have assumed your great power and have established your reign. The nations raged, but your wrath has come, and the time for the dead to be judged and to recompense your servants, the prophets, and the holy ones, and those who fear your name, the small and the great alike and to destroy those who destroy the earth. That is really a sign of change in this whole book. It almost divides the book, and this is the second half that is starting. It indicates God's final reign over all of the earth and the control. Not that it wasn't always that way, uh, but you remember way in the beginning of creation, the devil took control, you might say, of mankind through sin. And up to the time of Christ and his death and resurrection, sin reigned unchecked because there was no Holy Spirit. There was no real adherence to the teachings and the will of God. Mankind was running rampant, you might say, and sin was in control. But the one 
theme or the one signal that was common throughout the Old Testament was that the Ark of the Covenant that was established and built by Moses was always a sign of God's presence. Now, it got to the point where the people were worshiping the Ark and that wasn't what they should be doing. The things that were in the Ark is what is, was important. Remember, there was the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. There was a jar of the manna by which God fed the people in the desert for nearly 40 years, or approximately 40 years, we're not really sure. And there was the staff of Aaron. Now, why are those so important? Well, if you think about it, the Ten Commandments were what God gave the people to see as a guide, a guide for human interaction as well as a guide for worshiping God himself. The manna was something that God had given the people to nourish their bodies, to help them live and sustain themselves for approximately 40 years. And the staff of Aaron was something that God had given the people through Aaron, that's Moses' brother, to guide them across the Red Sea. And it was a sign of God's guidance, delivery, and governance. Delivery in the form of sustenance. So the Ark of the Covenant was a sign of God's presence among the people. And that's why we get our tabernacle in our church today with the host that remain is the same kind of thing. It's the presence of God among his people. All right. We don't worship the tabernacle. We shouldn't worship, and the Jewish people shouldn't worship the Ark of the Covenant, but rather what was in it. So, coming back to the book of Revelation, this sign of the Ark of the Covenant in heaven shows us that this book now is changing from all of those horrible disasters that were in the previous 10 chapters, or 10 or 11 chapters, have now sort of fulfilled their role. And now we're going to look at what and who is God, and why we should be worshiping him. So this is a sign here of God's presence within this book. And now we go on to something else. Many people have connected the Ark of the Covenant with Mary. And the next part of this book, chapter 11, or 12 of it, uh, is in reference to the woman. 
and people automatically assume that this is Mary because of Mary carrying God within her for nine months and nourishing him uh, as a child until he grows up until the age of 30, etc. Remember, age of 30 was approximately the equivalent to our age of 21, where a person isn't really declared a an adult legally until he's 21 or she's 21. And age of 30 at the time of Christ uh, was sort of that same uh, rite of passage, more or less. <clears throat> so the whole idea here is the Ark of the Covenant is signifying that now we are going to be paying most of our attention and seeing how God himself uh, is to sort of reflect his role and his wishes through the rest of this book. It's sort of signifying uh, the second half of the book. Let's go on. <clears throat> Chapter 12 here. The woman and the dragon says, a sign, a great sign appeared in the sky, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child and wailed aloud in pain as she labored to give birth. Let's stop there. I assume that all of you have this handout here. The second half of the book of Revelation gets deeply into a lot of the mythological terms that are used in apocalyptic language. We haven't talked much about apocalyptic language, but it was a very common uh, form of literary usage from the time of well, it goes all the way back to the 6th century because Ezekiel used a great deal of uh, apocalyptic language. And the book of Daniel, first part of the book of Daniel, is very much written in apocalyptic language. It was language that was used to disguise certain things uh, so that they could be said and understood by the local people, but not by those who had conquered them. If you go back to the time of Ezekiel, he's talking uh, from Babylon because Babylon had captured Israel, conquered Israel, destroyed the temple, and taken most of the people into Babylon as indentured servants. But they were conquered people. They couldn't do a lot of things, and therefore... Ezekiel's writing had to be disguised in such a way that he could sort of pass through, uh, uh, rather pass through uh, censorship, censorship um, uh, and not offend the people that were governing them at the time. You have the same thing in the second century B.C. where the book of Daniel was written it was written during the time that the 
last or one of the last of the uh, Greek kings, so-called kings, although he wasn't quite that at that level. Uh, Antiochus IV had conquered uh, Israel and tried to force everybody uh, in Israel to assume or take on the Hellenistic or the, the Greek cultures and to turn against all of their own um, rites and rituals of the Jewish faith. And therefore, the book of Daniel is written in the same way as a book of hope, but it is disguised by putting itself back into the time of the Babylon uh, conquest so that it could pass censorship, you might say, and not uh, be confiscated as something that was uh, satirical against the, the Greeks, and yet it was. <clears throat> you have the same thing in the book of Revelation, because remember, the Romans had conquered the Israelites, uh, or the Jewish people, and therefore the writer of Revelation had to disguise much of what he wanted to say. But by that time, this is, uh, you know, the first century, the later part of the first century, uh, apocalyptic language had become almost a style in itself. It wasn't used just to disguise uh, certain terms, uh, places, names, and events, but it was a style in itself, much like our science fiction is today. Um, and the people uh, to whom it was addressed understood that, and therefore they could look through the mythological terminology and uh, the references, etc., and see what was really being said. Unfortunately, that's not as easy for us to do today. Uh, and that is what I'm trying to get you to see. It really is kind of sitting there uh, in very plain language, and yet we don't see it because it's disguised with uh, a lot of um, mythical terminology that really doesn't have a lot of meaning to us today. People today want to know things uh, as they are, or as they should be, and not so much disguising something. So let us go through this here, because it has uh, a very important part to play in our understanding of the rest of the book of Revelation. Okay? The mythological understanding of what I just read here about the woman clothed in the sun and the moon, etc., etc., uh, has a lot to do with the whole idea of, of uh, Greek and Roman mythology. And it is taken pretty much from this whole idea of the sun god, Apollo and his wife and his child, Apollo, etc., etc., and that's why I wanted you to read that. I hope some, most of you have read that. All right. But what the book is really trying to say 
is uh, the Catholic or Christian viewpoint here. Said so the woman in this section is not Eve, as many people believe or have been told to believe that it is. But it represents, if you go back to the story of Adam and Eve, where God confronts Eve and, or confronts really Adam and Eve and the serpent as to why they did such a, a thing, that is, disobey an exact or a direct command by God. Remember, Adam and Eve were not expended from the Garden of Eden because they ate an apple from a tree. Okay? It is because they disobeyed a direct command of God. This is signify, or is trying to signify all of mankind's sin. We are not descendants of a specific couple named Adam and Eve. Alright? That is an allegory to indicate where we had a beginning. We began in some way, uh, I'm reading another book right now that is more scientific than it is religious, and it's extremely interesting about how humanity evolved over a period of many, many, many years, uh, all from the same organ or organism that was part of the Big Bang Theory, etc., etc. Very interesting and has a lot of uh, meaning, but it's not for today's explanation. Uh, it would take me a lot more, maybe another ten weeks to get through that. Okay. Uh, but in this confrontation between God and the serpent and Adam and Eve, he said that in spite of their sin, God will send a woman who through her son will crush the head of the serpent. All right. And that woman then is Mary. But it is also to be looked at in another way. It is also putting Judaism in sort of a human form. Because it was through Judaism that God spoke to the people and wanted them to carry out his word and the message to the rest of the world. And it was through him that the Messiah would eventually come. And Mary fulfills that role of that woman. Mary is the mother of Jesus Christ, the God, the Messiah, who is and was to come and will be here as part of our um, saving grace that will allow us then to return to the Father because of his human death and resurrection. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, represents this woman that was forecast way back in the book of Genesis and fulfills her promise that woman's promised mission. 
She is above all other women, which is signified by being clothed with the sun and the moon in Revelation here. The 12 stars represents the fullness of the presence of God. Remember, we talked about the number 3, 7, and 12. 12 is represent fullness. All right. And Mary represents the fullness of God because God was in her for nine months and then lived with her for a number of years as he grew up. All right. The 12 stars represents the fullness of the presence of God. Uh, and as we say, Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. We say that every day, or almost every day for most people, uh, and yet, do we really stop to think about that? Now, the red dragon, who is threatening, according to this book here, then another sign appeared in the sky. There was a huge red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on its heads were seven diadems. Its tail swept away a third of the stars and in the sky and hurled them down to the earth. Well, that is very definitely uh, apocalyptic language. But as we will see when we get a little further through here, that that represents Herod. Remember the word Herod, the name Herod, actually is Aramaic for the word red. If you translated it back through all of these languages, you know, from English back through Latin, through Greek, and so forth, the Hebrew, Hebrew and then to Aramaic, you would get red. All right. The red dragon who wants to devour the child is King Herod, who wants to kill all the children of Bethlehem who were two years or younger. Remember, because of the story of the Magi and all of that, we all remember that. All right. But Mary escapes that because Joseph, in a dream, was told by an angel to take Mary and the child to Egypt. Now, we don't know how long exactly, but again, the mythological language here, or the apocalyptic language, says for three and a half years, which is very, very common uh, throughout the Old Testament. It's very common in, uh, that is, the three and a half years uh, are very common in the book of Daniel as well. But three and a half years is approximately the right time because remember um, uh, Caesar Augustus died in the year 4 B.C. before Christ. Well, now, if he died before Christ, how could he send, you know, his people to slaughter? It's because the Gregorian calendar was in error by about seven years. So Christ was not born in the year one, as we all kind of 
assume, and our calendar says so, but actually approximately seven years before that. And so if he was born, you know, around seven years B.C., uh, and then went to Egypt for three and a half years, he could still be back in Israel, as, you know, at the time of Caesar Augustus' death. Okay. So, Revelation then is, as I said, written in apocalyptic language, which takes many of the symbolisms from mythology and weaves them into some of the reality to give us a disguised description of what the writer is trying to say. You all kind of get that, Joe? I have a question. Um, has the Catholic slash Christian view always been that the woman is not married? Or did, did it originally in the earlier writing was she considered married? Yes. The beginning? I yes. would have thought that she yes. was. Yes. So yes. where did that change? You just oh. Well, I can't give you a specific time uh, or a person, no. No, no. Over, over a period of time, as people began to theorize and, you know, look at this from very different points of view or different angles, yes, uh, they began to see a little difference. Okay. Now, the woman that is uh, forecast or prophesied way back in the book of Genesis, really isn't a woman, but the whole idea of Judaism, through whom the Messiah is to come. But Mary, in the New Testament, fulfills that role. There's a separation there. Uh, um, anybody have any questions or comments or disagreements on any of that? Dick? It strikes me with the comment that uh, Mary of Guadalupe has the 12 stars around her head. Mm -hmm. Full of grace. Full of grace. Mm -hmm. And she created that on the garment. And yet, if we're back here, we've got the same description in Revelation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not so coincidental, though. It is by design that that happens, because this is to signify the importance of marriage in God's plan of salvation. And in fact, Pope Francis and a number of bishops are trying to raise a an awareness, you might say, of Mary's role in all of salvation. In that particular incident, Our Lady of Guadalupe, and in many other places as well. Okay, the whole idea of 12 stars. Yes, Jen? Yeah, 
Well, that 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 would that would be reasonable. Yes. Uh, yeah. Jennifer's comment here is that, as we all have known uh, for many years, Mary is was crowned Queen of Heaven and Earth, uh, and Queen of All Saints, and a number of other titles. And this, her idea, or the idea of her being crowned as Queen of Heaven and Earth, could be based on this particular part of Scripture. Yeah. Well, that's because of uh, the idea of the apocalyptic language is confusing. The Mary, the Mary of Genesis, I mean the, the woman in Genesis, all right, is Judaism, all right, not Mary. But Mary in the New Testament fulfills that role, all right. And because of that, and her willingness to do whatever God asked of her, such as being um, pregnant without or before she was fully married, uh, and going through and raising uh, Jesus as she did, in spite of the fact that he was something more than just an, another child. Um, her role is very important. Any other questions? All right. Let, let us move on. I'm repeating some of this, but then another sign appeared in the sky. It was a huge red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on its heads were seven diadems. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in the sky and hurled them down to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman about to give birth, to devour her child when she gave birth. And that, of course, is Herod, uh, slaying the children of Bethlehem. She gave birth to a son and a male child, destined to rule all of the nations with an iron rod. Well, that sounds kind of formidable in a way, isn't it? What is the iron rod? The iron rod is God's plan of salvation as fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And it is a message that will not be changed. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. Iron rod. Her child was caught up to God and his throne. The woman herself fled into the desert, that is the flight to Egypt, where she had a place prepared by God that there she might be taken care of for 1260 days, three and a half years. Let's go on. And then war broke out in heaven. 
Michael and his angels battled against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but they did not prevail, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The huge dragon, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world, was thrown down to earth, and its angels were thrown down with it. Now, this happened way back before creation. It is not something that happened at the time of Mary or Christ. It happened way before creation began. That is the idea of the devil. And his rule of the earth. And that is referenced in Luke's Gospel, uh, chapter 10, verse 18, where Jesus said, I saw Satan being cast from heaven like a star, etc., etc. Okay. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have salvation and power come, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his anointed. In other words, we are passing over into, you know, all of the ideas of heaven, not so much the curse of sinful man on earth. For the accursed of our brothers is cast out, who accuses them before our God day and night. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, that is, the death and resurrection of Christ, and by the sword of their testimony, I'm sorry, by the word of their testimony, love for life did not deter them from death. And that is those people who suffered in spite of, well, suffered because of their faith. And therefore rejoice, you heavens, And you who dwell in them, but woe to you, earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great fury, for he knows he has but a short time. That is, you see, the whole idea of the angels who rebelled against God. Rebelled against, and why did they rebel against God? We don't know for sure, but theologians tell us that they theorize. That is because the angels were informed that Jesus Christ would be born of a man, and yet he would still be God, and that he would be above the angels. And the angels, certain number of angels, refused to accept that. They refused to accept that there would be a human being greater than they. Now, how they got to that point, don't ask me. I have no way of knowing, and I cannot explain it any further. That is a theory out there that uh, angels, I mean, theologians have given us. Or is it just a theory of power? When the dragon saw that it had been thrown down to the earth, it pursued the woman 
had given birth to the male, but the woman was given the two wings of the eagle. So that's the angel, you know, that was sent to uh, to Joseph, <clears throat> so that she could fly to her place in the desert, where far from a serpent, she was taken care of for again. Three and a half years, two years, a half year, etc. Okay. The serpent, however, spewed a torrent of water out of his mouth after the woman swept, uh, after the woman to sweep her away with current. Well, that's because they crossed over into Egypt. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth swallowing the flood that the dragon spewed out of its mouth. Again, that's mixture of the apocalyptic language coming primarily from this whole story of the Roman god uh, Apollo and, and Leto, his mother. So the, the dragon became angry with the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commandments and bear witness to Jesus. It took its position on the sand of the sea. In other words, the devil realized that he could not prevail against God himself, and therefore we human beings become the pawn. As we'll see when we get into the next part of this, the next chapter, uh, that there is and has been always a battle, a mythological battle uh, between God and Satan. And that will go on until the end of time. But God is protecting his creation, mankind, through Judaism originally and then Christianity. But if mankind does not take advantage of all of the things that God has provided us, then he cannot and will not protect us if we choose to follow the dragon. The beast was given a mouth uttering proud boasts and blasphemies, and it was given authority to act for 42 months. Again, three and a half years. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, and those who dwell in heaven. It was also allowed to wage war against the holy ones and conquer them. And it was granted authority over every tribe, people, tongue, and nation. All the nations, or all the inhabitants of the earth, will worship him. And all whose names were not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life, which belongs to the Lamb, was slain. Whoever has ears ought to hear these words. Now, where did you hear that before? Remember, that's how most of the letters to the seven churches 
way back in the beginning, where it ended, whoever has ears ought to hear. Anyone destined for captivity goes into captivity. Anyone destined to be slain by the sword shall be slain by the sword. Such is the faithful endurance of the Holy Ones. Now, this again is apocalyptic language. The church does not believe in predestination. And it would, this would read as if certain people were destined to damnation. And that is not the case. There is no such thing as predestination of, of in that particular way. God has predestined us to be happy with him forever in heaven. But at the same time, he has given us free will to make that choice. And if we choose to ignore all of the guidelines that help us to get to heaven, if we choose to refuse to accept his passion, death, and resurrection on our behalf, then so be it. You have made your own choice and you then live by it. That's what this is all about. The church does not, it highly condemns, you might say, predestination that certain people are destined for hell regardless of what they do. No, no, no. The book of Revelation talks about the beast from the sea. And I think I would imagine that many of you, when you first read this, expect something like Godzilla coming out of the water you know, and devouring people. Well, uh, unfortunately, many people still believe it that way about some huge dragon coming up out of the water. Well, no. And that's why I put this one little tiny word in here to make it a little bit more understandable. The beast from across the water. Yeah. And if you think about it, that makes sense in a way. Rome is across the Aegean Sea from Israel. And it had conquered all of the Roman Empire, which included Israel. Or had conquered all of what was the Greek Empire, I should say. Uh, and now has become uh, the major part of the Roman Empire. So it is Rome and the Roman Empire that has now really become the dragon from across the sea. And I've listed the seven major uh, people who made up this particular dragon over a period of a little bit more than 100 years from 44 BC to 79 AD. So we presume that uh, the book of Revelation was written around the time period of Vespasian. Okay. 
69 to 79 AD in that time period. Okay. Uh, this sentence down below is not quite correct. The date of the Roman Empire emperors and the Jewish kings is approximately a span of his life. Well, that's not true. Vespasian couldn't be uh, the emperor at only 10 years old, you know, so uh, that is not quite correct. It should be, I think, the reign uh, of their time and power. Okay. The beast from the land is, as I've said before, the Herodian dynasty. They were all, remember, Herod the Great was not fully a Jew. His mother was Jewish, his father, or one of them, I'm not so sure which is which now, but one of his parents was an Indomian. And you'll see that in, the, in, um, in some of the writings of scripture. Um, but he had four sons. One was executed rather early and did not participate. The other three sons, when Herod the Great died, uh, divided the kingdom among the three of them. And that's where the word tetrarch comes from. All right. Three reigning members. And all of the power that was given these people came from Rome. And therefore, the Herodian dynasty was very much despised by the Jewish people as well as the Christians uh, for various reasons, and primarily because they were in cahoots, you might say, with uh, the Roman Empire. Their authority came from uh, Rome's acceptance. They were not permitted to kill anyone without Rome's approval, and yet we know that they did um, many times and in many places, the most prominent being uh, Her uh, John the Baptist and Christ himself. But, you know, they wanted to stone the woman caught in adultery and many other things, all right? They stoned uh, St. Stephen after the death and resurrection of Christ, and so they took it upon themselves to do things regardless. Uh, but they did not have legal authority to kill anyone without Rome's approval. <clears throat> Is this fairly clear now who the two beasts are? All right. It sort of it sort of puts it all in a sort of ho hum uh, category. That's father and son. So that is their name. Yeah. Agrippa I was the one who sent uh, St. Paul to Rome uh, to be executed. Yeah. No, that was Augustus Caesar. 
Oh, oh, you're 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 right. No, I'm sorry. Uh, no, that was Herod. Herod the Great. Herod the Great did that. Yes. Yeah. Herod the Great slaughtered the uh, children. Yeah. Any questions so far? Now, on the back of that. This is important because many people have sort of a confused idea of what is good and what is evil, or the definitions of good and evil. So let's go through this because I would like to kind of clear up some of that. Many people, or perhaps most people, do not have a clear understanding of what is, what is evil in a technical sense versus the nature and the source of good. These two chapters, that is 12 and 13, talk about a war between God and Satan. That has some idea of a picture. We can understand that. Uh, and we can fix it in our minds. But every day usage, the concept of evil is greatly misused or confused with natural phenomena. And we hope that this paper is my attempt to shed some light on the subject as it applies to the book of Revelation. When we speak of good, we naturally think about God and all that God is and all that he represents or stands for. However, when we speak of evil, we mix up many things that we think or believe are bad and we do not accept. However, we cannot put all of these things into one bucket. We must have some idea of what is truly evil versus what is part of nature or just an accidental event. We are correct when we say God is good. More, specific, more specifically, we should say that God is love. And the definition of love is the desire or willingness to have or to give or wish the best of everything for our neighbor, our relative, our friend, or loved one. Anything less is a full or partial withholding of good that God plants in each of us, and that is the basis for sin. The withholding of good. In other words, if you deliberately do something where you should be doing a good thing and you withhold your efforts, your thoughts, uh, your actions, whatever, that is wrong. That is sin. Sin is the deliberate withholding of love in any form that is the cause of sin of various degrees of seriousness. To go further with this subject, we can say that sin and evil are the same thing and there are various degrees of sin. But where most people get confused is when they classify everything they don't like as evil. 
a serious auto accident, a child dying of serious disease, the loss of a job or an unfair employer, flood or hurricane damage. In a technical sense, these are not evils, although they bring sorrow and or hardship. These are all natural occurrences. What is really evil is when mankind perpetrates some of these acts and when they would otherwise not happen, deliberately causing accidents because of neglect or thoughtlessness, murder under any circumstances, the loss of a job due to the selfishness of the employer or his representative. Such damage from a flood or hurricane, or serious damage from a flood or hurricane, is generally not an evil act unless that damage could have been prevented. You have a good example of that right now up with the uh, Oroville Dam. That could have been prevented had they taken proper steps when the thing was built. Okay. So engineers tell us today, you know, sort of after the fact. Now, getting back to the book of Revelation, if we see all goodness as ultimately coming from God, then we should see all evil as ultimately coming from Satan. And that is what chapters 12 and 13 are trying to tell us. Here, God is opposing evil being manifested through mankind's selfishness, pride, hate, and struggle for power. However, we cannot put the blame entirely on the devil. In other words, we can't say, well, the devil made me do it. Okay? Or Satan. Because through our free will, we have chosen, uh, down through the ages, from the prophets and many others. I'm sorry, I, I guess I skipped a line here. Uh, because through our free will, we have, we have chosen to cooperate with the devil in these acts. We heard this in the story of Adam and Eve and down through the ages from the prophets and many others and now through Revelation. We are hearing it for the last time. We are the instruments of evil and our evil acts are sins. Further, one might say, well, why doesn't God just eliminate Satan? He could. But that would take away mankind's free will to choose as well as Satan's. This will eventually be done at the end of time, the end of the world. And then those are then whose side will you be on? Any questions? Does this help? You yes. I'm sorry, you have to speak up louder. No, we have to take it literally. At the end of the world there will be no more 
need for free will. What's that? Well, we don't know. We have to wait and find out. The book of Revelation tells us that there will be an end of the world. It doesn't say when. All right? And that is something that we shouldn't be worried about. The end of the world for us as an individual is when we die. So don't worry about the end of the world part. And worry about where you are in relationship to God. That's what's important. I, I, I really have a hard time dealing with people who get all upset about the end of the world. Because what can you do about it? The end is the end. All right? The end is under God's control. He has given you all of his ideas of how to prepare for it. But what you have to worry about is where are you at the time you die? Anything beyond that is beyond your control or ability uh, to do anything about. And so you have to be really concerned about where you are and that has to start today. Not, oh well I'll wait till, you know, some other time or I'll wait till I retire or I'll wait till I feel better or whatever. Yes. I have a sister-in-law. She runs the Assembly of God. She believes we're living in the latter days. Well, we are. We are. But the latter days are from the time of Christ to the end of the world. So she's worried. Right. But what difference does that make? What does that really say? The end of the world could be tomorrow. Today. Today. So you have to be concerned with where you are in your relationship now. Because you have no idea whether you will even experience tomorrow. Now, that's not something that you should be overly concerned about as far as, you know, because if you take care of your spiritual condition, on a regular basis, then tomorrow will take care of itself. You have another question? Don't worry about the Antichrist. That's not in the book of Revelation. <laughs> well, again, we can... Well, you brought up a good point. Evil is not something that the devil is going to be worrying and attacking individuals. We hear, none of us have, at least to my knowledge, none of us have a, a great power against, you know, the nation, the state, the state or the world. Satan attacks people through, let's say, ISIS. That, to me, is evidence today of the devil actually working through a large group of people who wish to control everyone else. 
ISIS is not a manifestation of Islam or the Islamic people in general. It is a group of people who are trying to gain power over everyone else. That is a sign of Satan working through something. We had the same thing through Nazism. We had the same thing through various stages of history all the way back, of certain large groups being invaded by Satan to gain power. And that is all. The ISIS movement is not for the betterment of anyone except those in leadership. If you look at the city of Aleppo and so many of those other uh, towns, particularly in Syria, what are they fighting over? It's all been destroyed anyways. The people are leaving as fast as they can. So what are they really trying to gain? And that is power. We've had this all the way back in many, many ways. Even through the Catholic Church, the whole idea of the Crusades, the basic idea of the Crusade was good. Unfortunately, it got taken over by Satan and turned out to be evil in many ways. It never accomplished the good that it intended. We had the same thing through the Spanish Inquisition. We had some of it started by the Protestant Reformation. Unfortunately, that worked out a little bit better and probably was a good thing in the long run. But we've had many of these worldwide movements that are perpetrated by Satan. Don't worry about Satan invading you as a person. You've got choices to make through your free will. And if you make the right ones, that is according to the teachings of Christ, then you needn't worry about anyone else or anything else or the end of the world. But if you are making poor choices, and we see that all the time, uh, <clears throat> I turned off the um, Oscar ceremony the other night because all it was to me was a manifestation of the I Love Me Society. <laughs> yeah. People out there to glorify themselves. Okay. Yes, there are a lot of good people in Hollywood. I don't deny that. But the general movement of Hollywood is self-glorification. Uh, you have so much of that going on in many other areas. Look at how many billions and billions of dollars are spent on glorifying the body. And how much is spent on improving the soul? You never hear about it. 
So it is we human beings making choices that have to worry about ourselves and the choices that we make. Are they in line with the teachings of Christ? That is what it's all about. Let's get on because I'd like to finish the next couple chapters. The Lamb's Companions. Chapter 14. Then I looked and there was the Lamb. The Lamb is a <coughs> designation for the term of Christ. The Lamb replaced the Paschal Lamb that Moses was told to slaughter way back at the time of Moses and the Israelites in Egypt and became an annual ritual for the Jewish people representing the sacrifice being offered to God for the forgiveness of sin. But when Christ offered his body, blood, and his life for the same thing, that became the accepted sacrifice and replaced the lamb. And as you know, with the death and resurrection of Christ and the destruction of the temple, the whole idea of animal sacrifice died out because it was no longer acceptable to God. <clears throat> then I looked and there was the lamb standing on Mount Zion, which is a uh, euphemism, you might say, for Jerusalem, but now it is extended into heaven. And with him 144,000, that was, remember, the 144,000 back earlier, that is an indefinite number, an infinite number, you might say. And his name and his father's name, again, indication, a sign of the Trinity here, written on their foreheads, again being sealed, which we talked about before. I heard a sound from heaven like the sound of rushing water or a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like the harpist playing their harps. They were singing what seemed to be a new hymn before the throne, before the four living creatures and elders. Here again we have the lamb being worshipped in the way that the father was worshipped back in the early part of this book. No one could learn this hymn except the 144,000 who had been ransomed from the earth. And these are those who uh, do not fulfill, uh, defile themselves with women. Um, they are virgins and so forth. Uh, in Judaism and in the apocalyptic indication, uh, sin of any kind, was often designated by um, some sexual reference. So don't take that uh, in, in strict seriousness. They have been ransomed as the first fruits of the human race for God and the Lamb. And on their lips no deceit has been found. They are unblemished because they are in heaven. And everyone in heaven is a saint. 
is purified one way or the other. Okay. Then I saw another angel flying high overhead with everlasting good news to announce to those uh, who dwell on earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, he said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, for his time has come to sit in judgment. Worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and springs of water. Right. This is important because this is what we should all be doing on a daily basis. Okay. Worshiping God and seeking his will, hoping and praying that he is accepting our efforts. A second angel followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. Again, Babylon is uh, a euphemistic use here for the city of Rome and the Roman Empire. Now, there, it's interesting here. If you look back, I'm digressing a moment, but if you look back, all of the empires, all of the great countries and powers of biblical times that have imprisoned or conquered Israel have never ever been powers after that. If you go all the way back to Egypt, Egypt has never been a major world power. Assyria has never been a major world power. Iraq has never been a major world power. Neither has Greece. Neither has Rome. So God has punished, not taken anything away, not disturbed or in a wholesale slaughter of any kind, but has never allowed those countries or powers to become national or world powers. A third angel then said in a loud voice, anyone who worships the beast or its image, or accepts its mark on the forehead or hand, will also drink the wine of God's fury, poured full strength into the cup of his wrath, and will be tormented in burning sulfur before the holy angels and before the Lamb. The smoke of the fire that torments them will rise forever and ever, and there will be no relief day or night for those who worship the beast or its image or accept the mark of its name. What we're talking about here is apostasy. Anyone who has understood who Jesus Christ is and still turns away from him, particularly anyone who joins uh, one of the non-Judeo-Christian faiths, automatically cuts themselves off unless they return. 
which means that, as Christ has told us, no one can come to the Father except through him. All right? No one can be saved except through Jesus Christ. And this is just another way of saying that. Here is what subsides, sustains the Holy Ones who keep God's commandments and their faith in Jesus. I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. You see, with all of the destruction that this is talking about, and particularly in Old Testament times, many good people were caught up in the carnage. But those people almost automatically are accepted into heaven because they led good lives and they were part of the sweep. So if you hear of somebody that has died and many, many of the saints have died uh, for strange reasons, let's put it that way, uh, they have been immediately accepted into heaven. I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, the spirit. Yes, said the spirit. Let them find rest from their labors and from their works accompanying them. And then I looked and there was a white cloud and sitting on the cloud, one who looked like the son of man. The son of man is a phrase or a title that was originated way back in the book of Ezekiel and used more prominently in chapter 7 of the book of Daniel. Uh, and that is where Christ got his uh, self-designation. Remember, Jesus never went around saying, I'm the son of God, but he would say, I'm the son of man. Now that to us sounds kind of yeah, hokey. But what it's saying is, in reference to the book of Daniel, I am above all other mankind and above the angels. Because if you remember in the story uh, in the book of Daniel where the three men, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are thrown into the fire uh, to be burned up because they refused to worship uh, the king and the statue and so forth. Uh, and when the king looks into the fire to see, he says, well, I see those three fellows, you know, they're walking around, but I see a fourth that looks like the son of man. And the way he's using it, it looks like another human being. And how could that be when only three were put in there? But we know that that represents God himself. All right? And so that's where Christ gets that. He is above the human being. He is above all angels because he is God himself. But it is, it is sort of a disguised 
title that he uses for himself. And I saw one who looked like a son of man with a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. I'm trying to move a little bit ahead because we're uh, running behind here. That's the trouble. When I get before an audience, I can go for hours. The next section is talking about something that could all be boiled down to uh, the grapes of wrath. I'm going to leave it here. The chapter 15 talks about the last plagues. Then I saw heaven, oh, and another sign, a great awe-inspiring, seven angels with seven last plagues, for through them God's fury is accomplished. We're talking about really the end of the world in this case. But again, we should not be worried because the end of the world for us is when we die. And hopefully all of you will be prepared for that in itself. And since things can happen uh, in a split section, you've also often heard about people who die of heart attacks totally unexpected. My own daughter had that horrible experience. Uh, And so I say, be prepared at all times. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We ask that you help us to truly understand our relationship with you as not where it is now, but where it should be. Help us to open our minds and our hearts. Help us to be able to sit and pray to you, particularly during this time of Lent, to renew our relationship with you, to take inventory of where we might be running short, Give us the grace and the strength then to turn and ask for forgiveness for the past and help and guidance for the future. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you for this season of life. Well, we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Amen.